From the University of Florida's Bruckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannam, and you're listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. In April 2018, the worst case outcome for a university scandal. The former chancellor and vice chancellor at UW Oshkosh have been charged with misconduct in office. Criminal charges. The criminal charges followed a civil lawsuit filed by the state. Coupled with financial ruin. Wells and Sonleitner both apologized in court. I am extremely remorseful for my actions and the harm that has been caused by them. It was never my intention to hurt the institution. I was trying to help. What happened here at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh? It wasn't a sex scandal or a sports scandal or any of those scandals that make for salacious headlines. This one didn't really get a lot of attention. It was a financial scandal, a white-collar crime case that mostly took place behind the scenes. The state says the men signed comfort letters to banks, promising the school would pay millions of dollars for projects if the university's private foundation could not. In fact, this scandal was pretty unsexy even for a financial scandal. The university officials weren't charged with misusing money in a way that benefited themselves. There were no fancy cars, no big splashy purchases. Personally, I don't think this should have been a criminal conviction, let alone a felony. What they were accused of at its heart was trying to help the university and its students. So what went so very wrong? To really understand that, we gotta go back in time a little bit. We could start about 40 years ago, but really I think it's probably more fun to go back to the 1600s. Giving money to a a college has been around as long as, as we have. I mean, Harvard was doing it in the 17th century. To the first time it was documented that a university held a fundraising campaign, bringing in money outside of tuition dollars to help make the university better. They hire basically an executive to help them raise money. That's Alexa Capilotto. She's an associate professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. It's the 1980s where the foundations become really popular. Fast forward to the Reagan administration. This plan is aimed at reducing the growth in government spending and taxing. You see support, public support for all sorts of things start to decline and privatization takes hold. Reaganomics. Reaganomics. Whatever reductions we've proposed in that 8% will amount to very little in the total cost of education. So that includes for higher education. Uh, So as the public support declines, these institutions need to find money um, from other resources. They start turning to the private sector. Despite the fact that university fundraising entities can be tracked back centuries, the 1980s is the decade where we see it become very popular to legally break off the function of fundraising from the actual university, creating a separate nonprofit foundation to do the work. Up until then, it's kind of an unusual thing to have this separate arm that's raising money for a public institution. By the 1990s, Capilotto says, we saw it as kind of a common part of a public university. And since then, it's only gotten more common. The majority of major universities now have these foundations. The reason that these foundations exist, I mean, a lot of it makes sense. They are are nonprofit, private corporations that have a lot more flexibility in how they raise and invest money 
state institutions are really beholden to kind of these very safe strategies for um, money management, you know, low risk. And so you have these separate bodies that can be a little more nimble in how they handle money. Property transactions can happen faster because they're not regulated by the state. There's flexibility in how they're operated. A lot of times you'll see kind of high profile CEOs and financial experts on the boards and running these foundations because they know money. And so it makes sense that a university would want to have this. So what's the big deal, you're asking? It's just that all of that extra flexibility then also creates more wiggle room when it comes to transparency. If you wrote to the university president and said, I want to give a big gift and I want to put all these conditions on it, you know, it can only go to the firstborn white children of alumni. Those conditions would be made public under every state's open records laws. That's Miranda Spivak. She was a journalism fellow here alongside me at the Breckner Center, and she just wrote a big story about private donor influence at public universities. If they go through these foundations, often under state open records laws, the foundations are exempt from these public disclosure requirements. Nearly all of these foundations are exempt from sunshine laws. That means no open meetings, no open records. Almost everything they do is private, even though they exist for the sole purpose of benefiting a public institution. One of the biggest consequences of that is that donors can make big-ticket gifts privately and also attach strings to their gifts. Privately. These universities were out there soliciting these big gifts. Uh, they could offer a lot of uh, anonymity if the donor wanted it. When I think of big donations, I often think of, you know, a new law school and someone's name is slapped on it, right? Are there really donors that don't want recognition when they give to a university? And why would they, why would they want to be anonymous? Well, there are donors who don't want recognition. Sometimes it's just out of straight altruism. You know, they just they just don't want people to know. Sometimes it's because they don't want people harassing them for more money, other universities. Sometimes it's because they want to lay conditions on the, on the gift and they don't want anybody to know. Um, and that was, you mentioned renaming a law school. That was the case of the renaming of the George Mason University Law School in Northern Virginia, which was is now named for uh, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. One of the major donors to the George Mason University Law School was the Koch brothers. And shortly after they made that gift, which, as you can imagine, was a pretty substantial one, a group called Transparent GMU asked the university to make public the conditions that were attached to the Koch money. But the university told Transparent GMU, we don't have those records. And the foundation said, we don't have to tell you that. We're private. So they took them to court. I guess it's, it's in some ways, the most successful case I've ever lost. Evan Johns is the attorney who fought the case for Transparent GMU. The trial judge ruled against us, and that, that decision was upheld by the Supreme Court. But even though he lost, the information ultimately did come out. And it did not look good. There were all kinds of conditions. They basically agreed to let the foundation have a say indirectly, but have a say in faculty hiring. The donors would have influence over who the dean would be. So, I mean, that's a that's a lot of influence. 
Yeah. Being able to decide or help decide who's going to lead the school. That's that's huge. And that comes from someone that we don't know. Yes. Eventually, though, this becomes public, which is why Evan Johns calls this the most successful case he's ever lost. Technically, under the law, privacy won. But practically speaking. Basically, under pressure, they did share the agreements and acknowledged that some of the um, the conditions fell short of their standard of academic independence. The president who apparently acquiesced, or uh, let's put it this way, on whose watch that occurred is now the president of Georgia Tech, by the way. And as a result of that case, George Mason University now voluntarily makes all gift agreements public. But they are in the minority. And at most public universities, the lines of separation are so blurry It'll make you a little dizzy. Oh, they're legally separated. I think to say they're completely separated leaves people with the wrong impression. In fact, they seem to work hand in glove in most cases. Here's a very basic example of what she means. I wanted to see whether these foundations make any attempt to separate themselves, at least from a branding perspective. So I went to Google and I typed, give to the University of Arkansas to see what would come up. The very first result that I got was a giving website, which had the university's logo and a .edu web address, which is reserved for the university itself. There's a bright red Give Today button, which I clicked on, and the option to choose my donation amount and where it would go. I made a small donation to the university's Access and Diversity Fund, but before I did, I searched the page. There is no mention of the university's foundation anywhere. The address on the website is for the Office of Annual Giving, and the building address is on campus. Immediately after I made my donation, I got an email from onlinegiving at uark.edu, a university email address with a university letterhead. I repeated this exercise at other schools just to see what would happen. Many of them were the same. Some of them at least used a .org web address and a .org email. Some did clearly say that it's the foundation that is taking the donation. But not all of them. What was pretty uniform is that all of them did use the school logos or mascots and were pretty symbiotic with the university. Yes, they, many of them are housed on campus and many of them do share staff with the university so that that staff person is on the public payroll and also on the private payroll of this foundation or 501c3, whatever it is. As is the case with many universities at GMU, the head of development at the university also served as the CEO and president of the uh, private foundation. Yet, legally, they're still two separate entities. And, I mean, you still lost the fight. I mean, that's, that's kind of shocking. It's pretty stunning. It is. It is stunning. One of the scholars who's written a lot about this um, before I did said, he called it gymnastics. Like, the gymnastics they're doing to keep this stuff from the public is just mind-boggling. As you can imagine, it is a breeding ground for all kinds of misconduct. The College of DuPage, the president of the college, using the foundation as kind of his personal petty cash. I mean, he was like buying all these kind of extravagant things and then taking the money from the foundation 
$1,300 in foundation money on a hunting excursion and, you know, buying rifles and taxidermy and you know, all these things. And that, we've seen a lot of cases like that. You can see how because there is more privacy and secrecy and not as much oversight, someone in a position of power could misuse that money and you're not going to know about it. Does that happen often? I think for the most part, they function as they should, but the whole point is that I can't say that for sure because I have no way of knowing. I can't get a glimpse into these operations. So for me, that's kind of a guess and a hope, but without tools to really compel transparency, I can't say that for sure. Another example is right here in Florida, where public universities use athletic associations to shield all kinds of documents. And to shield themselves from litigation. We talked about this a bit in earlier episodes, about how a 19-year-old football player a redshirt freshman was rushed to the hospital after named Eric Plancher Eric Plancher collapsed and died after off-season conditioning drills on campus. Died after practice in 2008. The family sued the University of Central Florida Athletics Association. University's coaching and training staffs were responsible for his death during practice in 2008. But the university claimed the association should be immune from litigation because it's a state entity. Except it also claims it's a private foundation when people file open records requests. When we talk about hypocrisy, when you have a foundation, when it suits them to say we're private, we don't have to give you this information, and then at the same time turn around and say, no, we're public, we have limited liability, or we're entitled to those those property tax exemptions, you see that kind of <laughs> the, the double playing. And that shows you that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. In some states, universities can do what George Mason did after the Coke money controversy and choose to make records available even though they don't have to. But Florida, which has some of the best records laws in the country, actually also has one of the worst exemptions when it comes to foundations. Not only are foundations exempt, but most of their records are considered confidential, meaning if someone decides to share them, they could be prosecuted for it. There are a whole lot of why don't we know questions, and it will change from state to state, from institution to institution. These state to state variations of the law. That's part of the problem is that there's no predictable standard. We did our own test of public records laws in nine states, by asking 21 public university foundations to hand over a pretty basic thing, meeting minutes. Here's what we got back. As an independent 501c3 nonprofit organization, the foundation is foundation not Foundation is a separate legal entity. Foundation is a separate organization. Is not a public entity of And them. its meeting minutes are not a matter of public record. Therefore, their records are not subject to the public records law. Uh, you know, there are hundreds of cases from other states that have still said that, you know, when, when you kind of create... Uh, an entity whose sole purpose is, is to uh, perform a function that a government entity would have performed anyway, you know, that, that you, really, um, you really eviscerate the open records laws and, and you just create an invitation for agencies to take any unpopular part of their operations and outsource it to, uh, to an entity that, you know, is nominally a, a private entity. 
So these foundations claim they don't have to let you go to their meetings or see their records because they are totally separate corporations that are not tied to the university. But let's go back to the case that pretty much shatters that optical illusion. What happened at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh shows how that is just not true. Here's what happened there. The UW Oshkosh Foundation embarked on these building projects and um, took out loans to cover them. And this included projects on campus and off campus. To make this happen, the chancellor and the vice chancellor signed promissory letters to the banks saying, Look, if the foundation can't cover this in the future, the university will help. Ultimately, when the foundation couldn't cover it, the bank said, "Okay, so we need the money. You said the university could cover it. It was $11 million on the line. And that is when this all came to light. And they were never empowered to do that. They couldn't promise that. They didn't get approval from the Board of Regents. No one really knew that they had done this. And um, so they ultimately faced criminal charges and a civil suit over this. And the university did have to pay money, I think ultimately about $6 million dollars, um, to, to kind of get them out of this mess. Basically, even though the foundation exists for the sole purpose of benefiting the university and sending money its way, legally speaking, it can't work the other way around. And in this case, the money flowed in the opposite direction, and that, that was the problem. In court documents filed in the case, a lawyer for one of the banks involved laid out how obvious it was that the university is not really separate at all. He wrote, All one needs to do to determine that fact is to go to the university's website and see what it says about the foundation. And then he quotes the website, which says, The foundation exists solely for the benefit of the university, and that it was created to promote, receive, invest, and disperse gifts to meet the goals and needs of the university. And the mission is to be a proactive leader in helping share and refine the vision of excellence of the university. He also notes that all employees of the foundation are state employees. The fact that the university chancellor believed that it was okay to mingle funds, that he never considered that it might be illegal, that he saw this as one big checkbook, that goes to the heart of the problem. If these foundations exist to enrich the universities, it seems only convenient that they then claim to be separate from a transparency standpoint, because they're not really separate in any other way. I am extremely remorseful for my actions and the harm that has been caused by them. It was never my intention to hurt the institution. I was trying to help. They were basically trying to save these projects, and um, it was not about benefiting themselves. Um, They certainly paid the price. The Federal Department of Education estimates that three quarters of universities have some kind of nonprofit foundation working on its behalf, whether it be an athletic association, a fundraising association, or some other reason. Miranda told me, I mean, these have even been set up for food service uh, at some universities. And perhaps one of the most mind-twisting examples? Sort of an interesting hybrid uh, in Indiana that was a a model that I hadn't seen before in some respects. With over 175 online programs, there's one for you. Purdue University Global is what it's called. And it was uh, formerly 
Kaplan, which still exists, but what Purdue did was acquire Kaplan um, in basically a paper transfer for um, for its online teaching. And then Purdue uh, began this big online teaching well before the pandemic. But in order to set that whole entity up, and Purdue University Global is a nonprofit under Indiana law, and presumably under tax law too, but to set that whole entity up, Mitch Daniels, who is the president of Purdue, former governor of Indiana, uh, went to or had his people go to the legislature and they got it exempted from state open records law. To It, it occurred in a sort of surreptitious way. It was tucked into a budget bill. Um, and even the state, Indiana, interestingly enough, has a state open government ombudsman appointed by the governor. Uh, who at the time was Mike Pence. And um, he didn't even know that Purdue was going for this exemption. So even though Purdue's activities are uh, public and subject to public records requests, its online component is not, even though it, it is teaching and doing you know, online teaching, as I said, well before the pandemic. But it's a public university. It's a public university, and it's doing even more so maybe than the fundraising and the foundations. It's really doing the work of a public university because these people are teaching. Uh, so um, that was that's a model I haven't seen, but who knows, may get replicated around the country, although not every state is going to be as compliant as the Indiana legislature in creating exemptions to open records laws. Virginia, in fact, just went in the opposite direction uh, because of the George Mason situation. But just to be clear, it's a public university teaching students under the name of Purdue University, which is a public university, right? Right. And it's not really public. Right, right. Uh, you know, whether it's public or not, and that was that's a matter of, I think, that could be debated what it what it is. If it is a public university arm, it is got a special exemption from what the public university is usually entitled to, which is uh, public records disclosure. The president of Purdue University is Mitch Daniels, and before he was president, he was the governor of Indiana. He used that power to make this deal, and when it was announced, he proclaimed that Kaplan is now a public university. Our trustees today have authorized its acquisition and conversion to a nonprofit public university. But when open government proponents, for lack of a better word, freaked out, Purdue officials reframed things a bit saying this new university wouldn't take any state funding and would operate as a nonprofit foundation, not as a state agency. This, they said, would give it the ability to remain nimble and innovate in the sector it serves. What they mean by that is online education is pretty competitive. So having this exemption allows Purdue Online Global to keep its business plans and marketing strategies confidential. If I'm a non-affiliated with the school, right? Like what bigger picture? Why is this secrecy? If I'm just like a, a taxpayer, how does the secrecy impact me? And why, why should I care about this? Well, I think, you know, there's a, a, a relationship between taxpayers and 
what they know they're supporting both at the federal and the state level. I mean, obviously we don't know everything, but public public higher education is really sort of the crown jewel in many states uh, of what, you know, they have tax supported, publicly supported universities. You have a certain expectation that the word public really has some meaning and that things are transparent. I mean, that's what that means. So if you're a taxpayer and suddenly you see uh, that Michigan State, and I'm just holding that out as an example that I'm making up, (laughs) not necessarily based on any particular event there, but if you see that suddenly the the, um, philosophy or the political science department is uh, hiring a bunch of people who espouse a certain ideology, you're thinking, you know, what's going on here? I send my kid or I support this university to get a full and fair and robust and objective to the extent possible education. And now there is a tilt going one way or another. It could be going to the left. It could be going to the right, whatever. Uh, and, And I'm uncomfortable with that because I thought public education really was, you know, for all and was something that uh, I could support and it wasn't ideological. When a huge chunk of a university's revenue is coming from a private donor who has, you know, is really outspoken in their political ideology, you know, even if there are no explicit strings attached in any gift agreement, it's still helpful to know how much is coming in, when it's coming in, uh, you know, for what programs it's supposed to benefit. Because those those things are almost as important uh, in sort of illustrating soft power as as the the, uh, contractual terms that, that are spelled out explicitly. Evan Johns told me that after his case resolved and the effect was clear that sunshine would prevail over darkness, that proponents of these foundations began to say... That uh, folks won't want to donate. This will have a chilling effect on university donations um, if they're made public. Now, the empirical evidence out there refutes that. Uh, There's been some, some study of that, and there's no observable chilling effect on donations... Uh, but but the very fact that that's trotted out as an argument in some of these legal cases makes you think that that uh, you know wh- whether it's the the primary intent for setting up these organizations, it's certainly uh, something that that can be important to attracting donors. I mean, if their view is that donors won't want to donate if they're not anonymous, I mean, doesn't that kind of speak to the problem? It seems like it goes right to the heart of the issue. Yeah, if you believe uh, that public universities um, are an important part of sort of the the public trust and, um, you know, state government as a whole, then then yeah, it, it really it really does seem suspect. Honestly, I see university foundations as part of a larger trend and, and kind of a challenge for us because we're seeing public institutions become more and more privatized. So this isn't just colleges and universities, the private sector has has come more and more into the public domain. And there have always been clear-cut laws about transparency in the public domain. If you're a public agency, it's pretty clear that you need to tell people what you're doing with their money, how you're managing their community, 
I mean, that's kind of the basis of any democracy. It certainly is here, but there's no clear-cut way to address it when those functions move into the private sector. And so this is just one part of this larger issue, and I think we need to care when we can't find out even the most basic information about how things are being run. I mean, that's that's a real failure, and and it could ultimately harm us if if things are being done, especially if they're being done improperly, and we have no way to know it. It reminds me of this song. It's kind of catchy, and it gets stuck in my head a lot. Sorry, not sorry. It's a pretty trendy thing to say these days. It's basically a sarcastic way of saying, I don't care if you like what I'm doing. This song is from the hit Broadway show Six, which chronicles the lives of the six wives of Henry VIII. I went to see it right before the pandemic shut down Broadway. And as I worked on this episode, I couldn't stop thinking about it. This song, the attitude, it perfectly encapsulates the message these universities are sending. We're supposed to be public, but we're gonna do what we want. Sorry, not sorry. Public, not public. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Canham. The associate producer is Tori Whitten. This episode was edited and mixed by James Sullivan. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. You also heard the song Don't Lose Your Head, written by Lucy Moss and Toby Marlowe, and performed by Christina Modestu. The executive producer of Why Don't We Know is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydontweknow.org.